Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, July 23rd, 2020, and it is a great pleasure to have everyone here together, learning together, getting ready for Shabbos, getting ready for Tisha B'Av. There is a passage in the Talmud, it's a Gemara Masech Tanis, that is discussing the rules, the regulations for the day just before Tisha B'Av. And the Mishnah says, Lo yachal basar v'lo yayin. In the meal, before Tisha B'Av starts, so that's the afternoon before Tisha B'Av, we're already beginning the process of mourning. We're not allowed to eat meat at that meal, and we're not allowed to drink wine. The custom of Ashkenazim is to extend that practice backwards from Rosh Chodesh Elul, from the beginning of the month of Elul, which was yesterday, for the nine days leading up to and including Tisha B'Av, that we do not drink wine, we do not eat meat, but in the Talmud, that's the rule concerning the meal just before Tishbav. And there are other rules and regulations and practices, what we uh, may do, what we may not do during this period. And then the Talmud says the following, Amar of Yehuda Amarav. Rabbi Yehuda says the name of Rav, Ka'chayiminhago shall Rabbi Yehuda b'Rabbi Loi. This is the practice of Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Eloi. Erev Tishabav, in the late afternoon before Tishabav would start, Mevi'en lo pas They would bring him a piece of dry bread with salt. V'yoshev ben tanor likirayim. He would sit on the floor of his kitchen between the oven and the stove. First of all, sitting on the floor in the kitchen between the oven and the stove is uh, a place that is not such a nice place, a place that a person who is very sad would sit there. But also, if you're sitting between the oven and the stove, Certainly in former times, it's a place where you would be able to see flames like existed at the time of the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Yerushalayim. So he would sit on the floor in this corner of the kitchen. He would eat his dry bread. And he would drink a container of water. Vedome and he would resemble in his actions and in his demeanor a person whose, God forbid, whose deceased relative is lying before him. For us, the challenge of this period of the Jewish calendar, we're now in the period of the nine days leading up to the ninth of Av, 
that commemorates the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, other catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people in Jewish history. The challenge that we have is that we have outward actions of mourning. Some of us don't shave. We don't have weddings. We don't drink wine or eat meat except on Shabbos. We don't listen to music. On Tisha B'Av itself, we fast. We're not eating. We're not drinking. We sit low to the ground like a mourner. But the problem that we have is all too often our heart remains untouched. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we reach the realization of Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Eloi? How do we personalize it? Especially since none of us ever experienced living in a time when the Beis HaMikdash was standing. By the way, Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Eloi also did not live during the time of the Beis HaMikdash. He also did not see it ever in his life. And somehow he was able to internalize and personalize the loss so that he was not only acting but feeling like one who, God forbid, their loved one is deceased in front of them. How do we reach that? That's the effort that we need to put forth in these days. And to try to grasp this First, let's take a look at the building and see what that building meant and then to appreciate what it means not to have it. So let's start at the very beginning. Of course, the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, began originally as the Mishkan, the sanctuary that God commanded the Jewish people to build just a few months after they left Egypt and that traveled with them through the desert and for several hundred years after they came into the land of Israel. And then finally it was transformed into a permanent building in Jerusalem. But it began as the Mishkan. And at the very beginning, in the Parsha of Truma, where God commands the Jewish people to build this structure, which is going to go on to be the Beis Hamikdash, the first temple and then the second temple, God says these famous words, Va'asuli Migdash, Vashachanti Besocha. Build for me a sanctuary so that I may, dwell, I may dwell within you. I pointed out to you before, the Pasuk does not say, God does not say to the Jewish people, Build for me a sanctuary in which I may dwell in it, but rather, Build a sanctuary so that I may dwell in you, Besocham, within you. Build a house so that God can live in you. The building of the Mishkan and the presence of the Beis HaMikdash was an invitation by God to the Jewish people shortly after the encounter at Mount Sinai to enter into an ongoing relationship of intimacy with God. It's significant that when the building is reaches its final form, the Beis HaMikdash, 
Literally, that means the house of holiness. It is a bias. It is a home. It is God's personal space. It's not a public formal space, but rather a personal, intimate, revealing space that God is inviting us to share. Try to imagine for a moment if you could feel that sense of intimacy with God, that you had been invited into God's own, the feeling of being enveloped and protected by God's presence. Who among us can say that we have ever truly felt that? Who among us wouldn't do anything or give anything to feel that now? And imagine if the language of that intimacy was the language of prayer. If we really felt when we say words of prayer that we were speaking within a relationship of intimacy, that we were speaking having been invited into God's home. If we felt when we say words of prayer that we could achieve what the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah, promises. And it shall be, God says through his prophet Isaiah, <coughs> excuse me, that as soon as you call out to me, I'm going to answer you. While you are still speaking, I am responding to your request. I'm responding to your prayer. That's what it means, Vishalchanti Basocham, that God is dwelling within us, and therefore our words to God have an immediate response and reaction. That's what we're missing. With the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, we are missing that closeness, that intimacy with God, that feeling that God is listening and responding as soon as we speak. That's what we're missing. And we're missing another element as well. Because, of course, on Tisha B'Av, we focus on the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. But the truth is, the focus on Tisha B'Av is not on the burned stones and the destroyed building. Yes, of course, that is an important part of it. But the primary focus is on the destroyed community, the destroyed connections between ourselves and God, yes, but also between individuals, between members of families, between members of a community. During the time that the base of Migdash was standing, which was a period of over 1,200 years in total, the first and the second. Every single year, three times a year, Pesach, 
Shavuos, and Sukkos, the three festivals. Every single Jewish person living in the land of Israel would travel to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem. Just imagine for a moment what that scene must have been three times every year to have the entire Jewish people gathered together in one place. Imagine if three times every year you had the opportunity to see every single person you ever knew, every family member, every friend, every former neighbor, everyone together. Can you imagine the unity, the feeling of connectedness, of being able to stay in touch with people? So much stronger. That is what we miss as a result of the destruction. We no longer have a place to gather. Erica Brown writes, There is something transcendent about being in a space shared by tens of thousands of people with a similar mission and vision. There is something deeply moving about atonement, guilt, thanksgiving, and joy when it is celebrated collectively rather than merely personally. Today we no longer have that. Today, Judaism is an expression of self much more than it is an expression of the collective because we don't have that gathering place. Today, when was the last time you were personally, in person, part of a gathering of Jews on a large scale? Let's say, for example, 20,000 Jews. And by the way, Yerushalayim for the three festivals would be, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Jews gathered. But let's just say 20,000. When's the last time? How many times in your life have you been personally, in person, together with a group of more than 20,000 Jews for any reason, for any purpose? We have no causes today, only organizations, Erica Brown writes. With the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, we have no gathering place for our passions and our causes. But that is what we had when the Beis HaMikdash was standing. The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash is not just the destruction of the building. It's the destruction of the true meaning of community. And it is that that we mourn on Tisha B'Av, on the 9th of Av. Not just the building, but the builders. The connection between the people that would be there. But the deepest level of Tisha B'Av is that we can get it back. Eli Wiesel wrote, Because I remember, I despair. Because I remember, I have a duty to reject despair. That's the essence of Tishabav. On Tishabav, we remember 
and we despair. And on Tisha B'Av, we remember and we reject despair. Because the last, next to the last line of the book of Eicha, the book of Lamentations, that we read the night of Tisha B'Av, that describes in such dramatic detail the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish people and the persecution of the Jewish people in the aftermath of that destruction. The next to the last verse, the thought that should stay with us as Tisha B'Av ends is the famous verse, Hashivenu Hashem Eilecha Vinashuva. Return us, God, to you, and we will return. Chadesh Yamenu Kikedem. Renew our days like they were in times of old. We can regain that majestic community of Israel. We can regain that intimacy with God and we can regain the language for that intimacy within our prayers. But it takes a lot of work. And the time for that work is now. In these days leading up to Tisha B'Av. I'd like to share with you a passage in the Gemara and the Talmud. I'd like to study it together with you and analyze this passage. It's a very famous passage. You may be familiar with it. It's a passage in Masech de Gittin. The Talmud says, Akamsa ubarkamsa charov Yerushalayim. As a result of the story of Kamsa and Barkamsa, Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay, if this is going to be the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed, it is certainly important for us to study this and to understand this. Kamsa is the name of a man who lived in Yerushalayim. Bar Kamsa is the name of another man who lived in Yerushalayim. The two of them were not related to each other, notwithstanding the similarity of their names. Here's the story that the Talmud tells. Hahu Gavra, there was a man. It's interesting. This man, we are not given his name. There was a man, Derachme Kamsa, Ubaldabave Bar Kamsa. He had a friend named Kamsa, and he had an enemy named Bar Kamsa. Now, Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. We don't know of any connection between the two of them, even though their names sound similar. But to one of them, Kamsa, he was a friend. And to the other one, Bar Kamsa, he was an enemy. Avad Sudasa. This man, this anonymous man, once made a great banquet. And he invited all of his friends to come. Amalele He said to his servant, Zil Aisili Kamsa. I want you to take this invitation and invite my dear friend Kamsa because I want him to come to the banquet that I'm making. The servant made a mistake. Azal Aisile Bar Kamsa. By mistake, the servant delivered the invitation to Bar Kamsa, the wrong person. 
Bar Kamsa received an invitation to a banquet, so he went to the banquet. Asa Ashkechei Dehava Yosef, the host, again whose name is not given, comes and sees Bar Kamsa has come to his banquet. Amarle, the man says to Bar Kamsa, Michti, Hahu Gavra, Baldbave Dahu Gavrahu. This man is an enemy. My boy is Hacha, what are you doing here? Kum Pok, get out. So the host wants to throw out Bar Kamsa from his home, from the banquet. Amalei Bar Kamsa said to him, listen, we're in the middle of a banquet. There are a lot of people here. Presumably, the host is a wealthy person and the guests must have been the aristocracy of Jerusalem at this time. Amalei, listen, I'm here already. Let me stay. We don't have to talk to each other. I'll go to the other side, but just let me stay. And he made an offer. I don't want to be your guest. You don't want me here. I don't want to be here either. I'll pay you for the food and the drink that I, that I consume. I don't want anything from you. The host said, no. I'm not going to let you stay here. I want you to leave right now. Amalei Bar Kamsa said to this host, I'll pay for half of the whole thing. I'll pay for half of the entire banquet. Just don't embarrass me by kicking me out of your house. Amalei Lo. The host said no. The host finally grabbed a hold physically a hold of this fellow Barkamsa, the Vaafke, and he physically threw him out of his home, out of the banquet. It's a terrible thing to do, to hold on to anger and to embarrass someone in front of everyone else. To embarrass someone publicly is like committing an act of murder. It was a terrible thing to do. But listen to the response of Barkamsa. Omar, Barkamsa said to himself, He noticed, Barkamsa, that as he was being humiliated and thrown out of this man's home, nobody said anything. And present at this banquet were the greatest sages and scholars and rabbis and leaders. No one said anything. No one spoke up and said, you shouldn't embarrass someone like that. Let him stay. Barkamsa was upset not so much at the host. Maybe he didn't expect more from this host. But he was extremely disappointed with the leaders who were there who didn't speak up. Amari said to himself, 
Since no one of the leaders spoke up, it must be that they felt that it was okay what he did. It was okay to embarrass someone publicly. It was okay to humiliate someone publicly. He then left his home and he went to the Roman authorities and spread slander about the Jewish people that invited the response by the Romans to decide to destroy the Second Temple. Terrible, terrible story. Now, clearly, it's not just this one story. Clearly, what the Talmud is trying to teach us is that this kind of behavior, this kind of sinaschinam, needless hatred, was prevalent, not only among lay people, but even among leaders who should have responded and intervened. And it was the deterioration of the moral fiber of the Jews of Jerusalem at that time. The decay that allowed Rome to be able to destroy and conquer Jerusalem. Let's look at this a little bit more deeply. Now the normal interpretation of this story is you have a man whose name is not given. He's the host. He has a friend named Kamsa. He has an enemy named Bar Kamsa. By accident, Bar Kamsa came to the party because of the mistake of the servant. And then, when the host says these words, Michti, Hahu Gavra Baldbava Dahu Gavrahu, this man is an enemy of that man. What that means is, this man, Bar Kachba, is an enemy of that man, meaning me, meaning he's my enemy. What is my enemy doing here? And that's why he threw him out. The words don't seem to fit that version. That's the normal interpretation. That's how we understand it. Bar Kachba was the enemy of the host, and, and the host threw him out. But the words don't fit in so well. Rabbi Yochanan Zweig asked the following questions. One more time, let's look at the words of the Talmud. Amalei. The host said, Michti, hahu gavra, baldbava, dahu gavrahu. That man is an enemy of that man. Now, if that man means bar kachba, and the second that man means himself, it's a little strange that he's referring to himself in the third person. It seems like he means to be saying, you are my enemy. Why does he say that that man is an enemy of that man? The, the words don't seem to fit in so well. And secondly, remember the first line. The first line of the story. Akamsa ubarkamsa of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was destroyed because of the story concerning Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Well, hold on a second. Kamsa had nothing to do with this, right? 
Kamsa was presumably not even present because presumably he didn't even receive an invitation because the invitation intended for him went to this other fellow Bar Kamsa. Why would the Talmud say that Jerusalem was destroyed because of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa when Kamsa had nothing to do with it? It was destroyed because of the actions, the words and actions of the host and we don't even know his name. So why would the Talmud say, okay, so the simple way to interpret that is that Jerusalem was destroyed because of the story of how the host acted concerning the confusion between Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Okay, perhaps that's what it means. But Rabbi Yochanan Zweig has a completely different way to understand it. And it's such an important lesson. I know that I have experienced this problem in my life and perhaps you've experienced it and it's something that we need to remove from ourselves as much as possible. Why does one person hate another person? God forbid. Should never hate anybody. But why does it happen? Well, if I feel that that person harmed me, I may hate that person. But there's another category. If I have an enemy, again, God forbid, a person should try not to have enemies, but if I have an enemy and then my friend wants to be friendly with that person, I'll be very upset. I expect that if I am angry at a person, my friends will also be angry at that person. And there are so many applications of how this works. Of course, when you say it in these words, it sounds like these are children in third grade. But of course, all of us understand this happens in life very often. That there's an expectation that if I hate someone, my friend also has to hate them. Here's what Rabbi Zweig says. The host did not know Bar Kamsa, had no relationship with Bar Kamsa. The host had a friend whose name was Kamsa. Kamsa and Bar Kamsa hated each other. They had their own private argument. Kamsa and Bar Kamsa hated each other. The host invited Kamsa, his friend. By accident, Bar Kamsa shows up. The host has no problem with Bar Kamsa. The host never had an argument with Bar Kamsa. But Bar Kamsa is the enemy of his friend Kamsa. So the host ejects this person from his home, not because he has any fight with him, but because his friend has a fight with him. And by the way, keep in mind, again, the friend that had the fight is not even there. That is sinas china. Sinas china means needless hatred. It means there's hatred where there's no reason for there to be hatred. The host had no argument with Bar Kamsa, and yet the host persisted in humiliating and mistreating this person, Bar Kamsa, simply because his friend did not like him.
That is a terrible, terrible, needless hatred. I've experienced this in my life. Maybe you have in yours. Where I wanted to invite someone and someone else said to me, if you invite that person, you shouldn't do that because I'm having a fight with that person. We need to work on ourselves. Even if we have an issue with someone, we need to try not to impose our upset on others because that can very easily be an example of sinas chinam, of needless hatred, of causing enmity when there is no reason for it. And it's because of that prevalence within Jerusalem at that time that the moral fiber of Jerusalem was decayed and weakened and Rome was able to triumph. <clears throat> I shared with you before a discussion of one of the kinos, one of the poems of lamentation that we recite on Tisha of morning, which is a week from today in the morning. We discussed the, the, the dual metaphors in the famous kina Eleitzion. Tonight I'd like to discuss with you another one of the kinos. This is another famous kina lamentation. It is something that I find very, very moving and emotional for me personally. It also has a special tune that goes along with it that conveys the emotion of it. And allow me to share this with you. Eish tukad bekirbi, bahaalosi alibi, betsesi mimitzrayim. A fire of joy burns within me when I recall in my heart what happened when I went forth from Egypt. When the Jewish people left Egypt, we left Egypt with a fire of glory leading the way celebrating triumphant kinim aira laman azkira betsesi mirushalayim but i will cry lamentations so that i'll remember what happened when i left jerusalem in exile so it goes on for a number of stanzas and the format is to play off the similarity of these two phrases. Betsesi mimitzrayim, when I left Egypt, versus, contrasted with, betsesi mirushalayim, when I left Jerusalem. When we left Egypt, it was in triumph. It was filled with idealism and optimism and working towards a goal of reaching Israel. And then the diametric opposite, Betsesi Mirushalayim, when I left Jerusalem in destruction and exile, looking forward to persecution and to no future.
Az Yashir Moshe, Shir Lo Yinashe, Betsesi Mimitzrayim. Then Moshe chose to sing a song not to be forgotten, the famous song of Az Yashir, the famous song of triumph after the Jewish people successfully crossed through the Red Sea. That's what happened, Betsesi Mimitzrayim, when we left Egypt. Vikonen Yirmiyo. But Yirmiyahu, the prophet Jeremiah, sang a sad song of lament when I went forth from Jerusalem. Contrast the music of Az Yashir, the celebration of victory and triumph, with the mournful tune of Echa and mourning and lamentation. Chagim v'shabasas umovsim v'osos b'tseisi mimitrayim. With festivals and Shabbos and miracles and signs when we left Egypt. Ta'anis ve'evel uradov ha'hevel b'tseisi mirushalayim. But fasting and mourning and futility when I went forth from Jerusalem. The tune goes like this. And please, I'm, I'm sorry I'm so inadequate in singing it, but I want you to hear the jubilation of the first line and the contrast to the mournfulness of the second line. Chagim <coughs> v'shabasos umavsim v'osos Betsesi mimitrayim, tanis ve'evel uradov ha'evel, betsesi mirushalayim. The contrast tears at your heart. Now, the parallel of this magnificent poem is not just the poetic phrase Betsesi Mimitrayim and Betsesi Mirushalayim, the similarity and the poetic sound of leaving Egypt and leaving Jerusalem. But there is an inherent connection between those two. You know, you remember from Pesach, at the Pesach Seder, we have a Seder plate. And on the Seder plate, there are symbolic foods. And there are two foods that are a reminder of the sacrifices, the karban, the sacrifices that will be offered. One of them is a roasted bone. The other other is a roasted egg. A roasted egg? I can understand why a roasted bone would be a reminder for a sacrifice because an animal was roasted it was meat. A roasted egg? How did an egg... Why is there an egg on the Seder plate? The Ramah, Ramosha Isilis, writes, the reason that the food that we choose to remind us about this sacrifice 
is an egg. The reason it's an egg is because an egg is a food eaten by mourners. And you'll notice something in the Jewish calendar. The night of the week of the first night of Pesach is always the same night of the week as Tisha B'Av. The first Seder this past Pesach was Wednesday night. Tisha B'Av was Wednesday night. Every year, they fall on the same night. The night of B'Tseisi Mimitrayim, the night we left Egypt, and the night of B'Tseisi Mirushalayim, the night that we left Jerusalem. Same night of the week. And, you may know, the other time that we eat a hard-boiled egg, the custom is to eat a hard-boiled egg at the meal before Tisha B'Av. On the afternoon before Tisha B'Av, as we get ready to fast, we have Su'uda Hamafsekes, the meal that will differentiate and begin the fast period. We have the custom to eat a hard-boiled egg dipped into ashes as a sign of mourning. Because, yes, it's true that we left Egypt, but we also left Jerusalem. And the two are connected. The two are connected through this horrible egg, through this reminder about mourning. But why is an egg a food eaten by mourners? Says the Ramah in another passage, because an egg is round. And it reminds us, it reminds a mourner who, God forbid, a loved one has passed away and they come home from the cemetery and they have a special meal called Su'udas Havra, a condolence meal, and they are served hard-boiled eggs because it's round. Why is a round food a symbol of mourning? Because life is round, because there is a cycle to life. It comes, it leaves, and it will come back again. We have a principle of fundamental belief in Trias Amesim that there will come a time in the future when those righteous people who lived and who passed away will come back to life. Death is not permanent. The Beis Amigdash, the holy temple that was destroyed, was not permanently destroyed. It will come back. It will be rebuilt. Jerusalem, that was destroyed, is not permanently destroyed. Jerusalem is coming back, has come back, will come back. And that's what it is expressed in the remarkable last stanza of this kina. Torah usuuda uchlechemda Torah and testimony and the cherished vessels, the holy cherished vessels of the Mishkan and the Beis Amigdash when I went forth from Egypt. 
sason v'simcha, gladness and joy, v'nas yagon v'anacha, and the extinguishing of anguish and mourning, b'shuvi l'irushalayim, when we return to Jerusalem. The ultimate message of this kina and the ultimate message of Tishabav is that as painful as it is, as bereft as we are, without the building, without the con- connection, without the intimacy, we will get it back. We will return to Jerusalem. Our sages tell us, Kolemis Abel al Yerushalayim. Whoever mourns for Jerusalem, but not just outwardly, whoever mourns like Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Eloi, as if, God forbid, their own loved one is lying deceased in front of them, whoever mourns in that emotional sense, Zoha Liros Benuyeha, will merit to see it rebuilt. That's our deepest hope. Our deepest hope that that sadness and the mourning and the pain that we express will lead to the rebirth, the rebuilding. Recently, I read a remarkable novel I recommend it to you. It's called After the Flood by Cassandra Montag. And one of the characters says these words, I've lost and will lose. The room in my heart will grow with loss and not contract. I am not the shards of a broken glass, but the water let loose from it. The uncontainable thing that will not shatter and stay broken. A container of water, a vessel of water is broken. You can either be the shard of broken glass or you can be the water that is let loose from it that does not shatter, that remains connected. That is the emotional journey we will experience on Tisha B'Av as it unfolds this coming Wednesday night and Thursday. And with God's help this year, it should unfold in its permanent state, B'Shuvi L'Rushalayim, with a return to a completely rebuilt Jerusalem, speedily in our day.